All right, what's going on, everyone? We've got a different type of show today. There's three of us on, so we haven't done this yet. We'll see if we can manage. Um, invited some old buddies, Connor McNamara and John Wagner, to chat today about a topic that is kind of all over the news, or if you're you know, in a certain side of the news, it's the getting interpreters, Afghan interpreters, out of that country on visas to the United States. So it's not something I'm aware of it. I know that it's an issue, um, but these two have actually been kind of tied in with that process for the last, I mean, almost 10 years now. So who better to talk to than, than these two guys? So Connor, John, thanks for jumping on for big guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So excited. anybody who's uh, watching this, we'll, we'll have this on YouTube as well. Anybody who's watching, will see there's actually four um, tied in because, um, one is a new father. Connor's a new father and uh, picking up some responsibilities tonight. Just a few. Few. So um, guys, before we dive in, you know, Connor, if you want to go first and then John, just a quick background on, on you, who you are, and then maybe uh, just a little bit about how you're tied in somewhat with the SIV program. Sure. Um, yeah, Connor McNamara uh, was at West Point with uh, John and Stewart, and then was a platoon leader in Afghanistan um, in 2011-2012. Obviously, during that experience, worked with a variety of uh, Afghani interpreters and support personnel that were instrumental to, to our mission at that time. So when I got out and decided to go to law school, uh, read an article about IRAP, which is the uh, international, at the time, it was the Iraqi refugee assistance program. And then as the Iraq war, you know, died down, it became the international refugee assistance uh, project and got involved with them. And uh, so did that throughout law school. And then I've been doing that ever since. And as part of that program, have worked with a variety of former interpreters and personnel uh, in navigating the SIV process and trying to get uh, their, their status and to, to immigrate with them or their families to the United States. Nice, man. Sounds like some family action in the background. What do you got, John? Yep. Yeah, I'm John Wagner. I also was a platoon leader in Afghanistan in 2010 and 11. Um, I also, while there, I, one of my jobs was to manage our interpreter team that was assigned to our company. Uh, so through that, I got a little more heavily involved with our interpreter team. Um, and then I was able to kind of pick and choose the ones that I wanted working with me in my platoon for the rest of that deployment. Um, so I, I developed some close relationships through that. Uh, and then after I got out of the army, uh, maintain some of those contacts, and I helped a couple of them uh, through the process. More on the user side, I was really just trying to connect them to to groups like IRAP um, to help them complete their um, application. Uh, and I still have one guy that's over there right now that I've been in contact with ever since uh, we started pulling out, and he's he's pretty scared. Um, so I've been. Involved just kind of loosely, I guess I'll say, not as direct as Connor, um, helping out with uh, kind of from the legal side. Uh, I'm just more trying to connect them, so a little more on the personal side. 
Gotcha, man. So John, you're doing more facilitating introductions, whatever you can from here. And Connor is actually like, you're actually in some of these cases, Connor, is that accurate? Yeah. Um, and again, not like, you know, IRAP has the true legal experts where this is their job, but it's still, I mean, whether you get law students or attorneys or just kind of anyone that, that has uh, some familiarity with just statutes and legal framework or has connections in the government can really help on these cases. And so that's, that's kind of where the, the attorneys come in. And then IRAP oversees the case and, uh, you know, makes sure that everything's going according to kind of their guidelines and their training protocols, but attorneys across the country, law students across the country, um, take on these, these cases directly. Would, would one of you guys be able to dive into the SIV program, special immigrant, special immigrant visa, I think, and how that differs from IRAP. I can take a crack at it. Um, so special immigrant visa is the, uh, the program or the designation to this type of visas that the U S government has created this special immigrant visa program for the purpose of uh, the uh, folks that helped us out during these deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Primarily those, those people have been the interpreters that have uh, been putting their lives in the line with uh, military troops uh, for our same mission. Um, and, and in some, you can argue that they've been putting their lives on the line even more so because they're from there and they can't, sure their family is living there with them and their family is actually in danger because they are there. Um, so this program is designed with, with the intent to, uh, to help them, those that are fear for their lives and can kind of speak to uh, their experience with, with U S forces and, and kind of can present their case. Well, they can get it this special immigrant visa approved. They come to the States, they get relocated, relocated to the States and kind of can probably speak better to that um, to essentially start their new lives as an American. Um, whereas IRAF is just a third party group that is trying to help these uh, applicants navigate the process because there's a lot of bureaucracy involved and it's tough. It'd be tough for me as someone that was in the army to navigate through this uh, it's especially tough for someone that doesn't speak English and is from a different country to try to navigate our bureaucracy. So to, from my point of view, that's kind of where IRAP comes in and helps people get through the process. Honor, how do you do? I don't know. I mean, absolutely. Um, it, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. The SIV was supposed to be a more family immigration generally into the United States is, is usually very difficult. It was a lengthy process. The SIV was supposed to be a set number of spots that are set aside for this fast track process for those that assisted in, uh, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. So before I ask this question, I'll say I didn't send these guys any questions, so I might be putting them on the spot and they're just going to have to figure it out on the fly. Um, and, and we don't need to go down a rabbit hole here because I want to talk about Afghanistan and Iraq, but or especially Afghanistan. But is the SIV program like for anybody around the world? 
or is that exclusive to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, immigrants? It has, there have been, there have been slight changes with it over time. So for instance, when it first was put into effect, it was Iraq only. Then it was expanded to Afghanistan. When it was first put into effect, you had to be able to show one year, one full year of service in either of those combat zones. Then it was expanded to two years of service. And then the number of slots that have been set aside has also varied widely over the years. And so I, I, I'm not 1000% sure here, but I believe it's only Iraq and Afghanistan. Cool. But well, my I'm, point is, is that it is that it has that it has changed over time depending on the the administration that happens to to be in office. I got you. Now, I think it was I don't know. One of you guys said it was supposed to do this thing. It was supposed to work this way. Um, I feel like all of my interactions with it, and when we were in Austin, we signed up for something where we like kind of sponsored a local family that came from Afghanistan. It was through SIV. It was like tied in with SIV. So they were, they were an SIV family. I don't know if you'd still call them that once they made it to the States, but it was kind of helping them acclimate to life in the U S. So we met up with this family. I mean, maybe just once we exchanged communication a little while, but um, anyways, one of you said it was supposed to work a certain way. It doesn't sound like it really has. Is it been kind of messy just from your perspective or efficient, effective? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of challenges to it. And, and I don't, I'm not looking to point blame anywhere, but, um, you know, just the, the guys that I've been trying to help, they, they served for three to four years, starting in 2009, let's say, and they're still trying to complete their application so we're looking at i mean it's like an eight-year process sometimes um with, with really no no end in sight so it it can just take so long and i'm not sure if that's normal for for other type of 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 uh of immigrants but it just doesn't seem like it's the, the best system why like what takes eight years in an application like yeah I'm, I'm sure every single one of them is different that's probably part of the headache but yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Connor? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, exactly. It's not, it's, um, it's not like I have some insight behind what is happening. I mean, it's, there are a variety of obstacles that have to be overcome on this. And so the SIV process is, it's, uh, it's like a five step. You can boil it down into to about five steps. And the biggest one is, the hardest one to accomplish is the chief of mission approval step. And that is where in WAGS, this may be what you had been helping uh, some of these former interpreters with, but I mean, this is where it's, it's the gathering of all of the documentation, the proof of work, getting the recommendation letters together from officers or whoever else who have worked with you over time and potentially having to get some of that stuff translated uh, put into a packet that follows these very bureaucratic guidelines and then gets sent in for approval. And once you get that approval, and that's one of the, that's a very difficult approval to get 
then you can move on to the further steps that builds you towards what will eventually end up being an actual interview and then ideally approval and travel to the United States. And, but like, I think Wagner, you said this best earlier. I mean, speaking a foreign language, trying to navigate the, the US, the bureaucracy associated with, with US immigration policies, if you don't have someone assisting you, that's really, really difficult. And so let's say you put together that chief of mission packet and you submit it. And then, you know, it goes to USCIS, I believe, which is the US um, Citizenship and Immigration Service. Let's say it takes them eight months or a year to review that. And then they send it back to you and are like, hey, this wasn't translated properly. Or this this isn't the document we need for employment. You actually need this other document. So then you scramble around, you get that document, you resubmit another eight months, a year, and then maybe there's another problem. I mean, people spend years just trying to get through chief of mission, largely because they it's a, it's a crazy bureaucracy and they don't have the assistance to, to kind of line up all of their documents in the way that USCIS wants to see them. And their their thing is, you know, we take for granted the resources that we have, you know, we have computers and internet. And if you don't, you can go to the library and have access to that stuff. Um, You know, I've never been to to Kabul. So maybe that's more of a modern city closer to like an American city, but I'm skeptical that that's totally the case. And like my guys that were still in Kandahar city, you know, part of the struggle is just how do you, how do you get these documents when you don't necessarily have like a stable home? You've been sort of living on the road for most of your life. You, you probably don't have a computer or access to electricity. Uh, so you have to like make plans to go somewhere where you can have access to that stuff. You probably have to pay somebody off to get that. Um, and, and then when you do, you reach a roadblock and then it's, oh, shoot, I'll try again next month to, to get the same document or, or whatnot. So I think that's part of what's happening and I'm speculating in, in, in large part, but just that's kind of what I've gathered through some of these conversations with these guys. No, totally. I got a scanner right here by my desk. So when I get something that's paperwork and I have to send it in, right? Like I can print and it's back up and going, but most of that stuff they're getting letters of recommendation from eight years ago, they probably have hard copies. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah. They hold on to that stuff like it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Getting it scanned and, in and a scanner that works, God, that's hard to find here. Right. Right. And a lot of them, I mean, and this is just stuff I've seen from, from personal cases that I've worked on, but let's say the documentation isn't what they're looking for. Well, it, it's not like they were hired by the U.S. military. That you know, I mean, the U.S. military has contracts with these third-party countries or countries, these third-party companies that – may only exist for a couple of years or may keep awful or no records basically, or they had a supervisor who has been killed or who left and they don't have any contact information for them. So then you also run into those issues where it's like they, they never got the documentation for whatever reason. And now those, that company or their supervisor is unreachable or doesn't exist. And so that just a, becomes a morass. That's an interesting point because it makes it then sound like this immigration process is like it's a possibility. 
if you do this job, that's a possibility. It's not a guarantee. It's not like a term of employment, if you will, right? It's just, if you do this, this thing could happen. And maybe the people all through that chain weren't vested in that. Absolutely. And, and I think I can dive into a, an example here. So, so the guy that I'm still helping, his name is Faradun Kohistani. Um, when he decided to resign from being an interpreter with the, the third party contracting agency that the U S government was using that hired him to be an interpreter for the United States. Uh, when he resigned, there was some sort of weird interaction um, where they must've been in like a shortage or they, there was like some bad blood or something, but they gave him like a, like a negative review on his way out. And, and however they worded this negative review um, really hurt his chances to get approved for a special immigrant visa. So like you said, Preston, this company wasn't necessarily vested in helping this guy out as he, as he's leaving, they may have actively tried to prevent him from getting the special immigrant visa in a potentially nefarious manner. Um, now, again, I wasn't there. I don't know all the situation. I, all I know is what Faridun has told me. Um, and it just, it just seems kind of fishy. So it's one of those things that his case is still alive, but, but I'm not, I don't have good confidence that it's, he's going to get here. And I think that one of the biggest problems is that he has like a weird exit situation from that third party contractor. And again, if there's a real security threat, then I don't want him to get a special immigrant visa, but I don't know if it's a real security threat. If it's just some guy that didn't like that he was quitting you know, so, yeah. so there's, there's some weird challenges going on and that kind of gets back to the, oh my God, there's corruption everywhere in the society. So how do you, how do you trust anybody that's, that's trying to, that's a part of the system? Yeah. Let's back up a minute. Um, because I think there's something here that maybe we took for granted that's worth explaining a little bit or spending some time on. And it's the, the urgency for these guys. I mean, it's frustrating for us. Like if it took you two months to get your driver's license or three months to get a passport, right? You're like, do I need to call a Senator to get this thing resolved? Right. But um, it's just frustrating. But these guys from the day they started working with American forces, their families were at risk. They were at risk. I mean, it's hard. I feel like that's something that we can't fully appreciate here because we don't have, there's nothing like that. You know, our families aren't at risk day to day because of the jobs we had, but we had a couple interpreters, not all of them, that would wear face coverings when they were outside of the base because they were terrified that a local would recognize them, tell their families or tell maybe not their families, but tell Taliban um, who they were and their families would be killed or they'd go on leave and they wouldn't come back. And um, that's, that's not something that started last month. These guys that you worked with, each you guys worked with in 2010, 2011, may have already been dealing with it for three years. They're still doing it, still dealing with it 10 years later. So the urgency is, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like hard to overstate. It could happen any day. You can't overstate it. So one of, one of my guys, um, he, uh, 
he was absolutely terrified. And this was just a couple of years after, um, after I got out of the army and he, he reaches out to me and he's, his family's receiving letters, uh, you know, like the night, nighttime yeah. letters that get dropped off, uh, at their house that, Hey, we know your son was helping U S forces, um, and some sort of threat accompanied that. So he tells me, and then I'm trying to get an understanding or I'm trying to find how to help him out. And then he tells me that, um, you know, a month later or so, Oh my God, they burned my family's house down. Uh, fortunately my family got out, no one was killed, but they are like, this is awful. How do I get out? And, it was so urgent and the process was moving so slow that I recommended that he just flee. And at the time, a lot of people were, um, a lot of refugees were leaving Afghanistan to go to Turkey. Um, so that's what he did. He, he got his family to a safe location in Afghanistan. He fled to Turkey and he's in Germany right now. Um, so it's, it's super urgent um, for some of these people and they can't wait for the uh, bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, there's not a, it's weird. You hear that and my mind goes to, well, John, can't you call somebody, right? You're in the army. Don't you have somebody you could call and say your buddy's in danger? But the reality is even if you're on the ground and you hear that, there's just nothing you can do. Um, yeah, it's hard to. Yeah, I mean, uh, all I could do is try to help him navigate the system to get a special immigrant visa. But again, that could still take five years. And that's not going to help someone that is trying to flee from Taliban threats. And they can find you almost anywhere you go in that country, right? Mm -hmm. I, I dealt with a very similar, I mean, one of the guys, he's actually here now. Um, we got him over with his, with his family. He's living uh, in Sacramento, uh, thrilled. And, but in the process of getting him out while we were still waiting for him to get final approval he was constantly on the move living on you know friends in friends houses and random provincial uh, you know districts as far as he could get from home uh couldn't go home to see his family because he was terrified of getting recognized by taliban at, at these checkpoints to get set up especially in the rural areas and while that whole process was unfolding uh his father was killed was was just pulled out of his house and, and, you know, they didn't happen there, but his father was, was taken somewhere and, you know, never seen again, um, trying to get information as to where this guy was. And he purposely, you know, wouldn't call his family, didn't tell them where he was staying, but I mean, it's, it is life on the run in the, in the, the, the greatest sense of the phrase. How much of a family can somebody bring over generally speaking? Um, you can, I mean, you can bring over, it, it depends. There are different, see, this is where I'm, I'm not, I'm not a complete expert on this. So, so take this with a grain of salt, but there are tiers and I'm not exactly sure how it plays into the SIV program. You can absolutely bring all of your dependents. So, I mean, we've, we've brought over a family of seven people before. Spouse, children. There's yeah. not, right, right. But it has to be dependents. You're not getting your adult brother, sister, uh, anything like that over usually on an, on an SIV. 
uh, that I have seen firsthand. But again, this is where it gets into the program has changed over the years and I'm not sure exactly what the limitations are, but it's, I mean, the priority definitely goes to immediate family independence. And then, you know, then it goes out from there to um, younger siblings, maybe that are not adults, and then eventually to parents and extended family. But um, I, I don't want to go any further than that. I just, I don't, I don't have enough of a working understanding as to where the program stands. That's an attorney fully hedging his bets right there. That was a pro move on Connor's part. Um, so, so maybe I'll, I'll get kind of deep on a question here. You guys figure out the, what you, how you want to go about this, but why? Like if we're talking life and death for 10 plus years for some of these folks that helped keep Americans alive in Afghanistan, why wasn't this more of a priority? yeah why do you think this wasn't prioritized i think it's if this was a priority and there was a easy path to citizenship for these interpreters then it would be an easy way for a terrorist to get to the states and cause harm so it it had to be it had to be taken very cautiously um and i i understand that and um I agree to it to a certain extent, but it's uh, it, it just puts these these guys in a really tough spot. I would agree with that. Um, I think that if we wanted, I mean, so the biggest issue with this is there just aren't. Okay, again, I'm not in in the, the behind the scenes with with US CIS and. Uh, FBI and other agencies that are that work with vetting these individuals and the processing of these requests. But I mean, you could you, you could always add more resources, and the biggest issue is the time. And so, like John's saying, he's been working with you know, the, the current uh, former interpreter that he's working with. I mean, you said it's been four or five years since he originally submitted his application, John. It's been about eight years. Yeah. Eight years since they were, I mean, so that's, and that's the issue. I mean, you hear stories like that all the time. Eight years is, is one of the longest I've heard of, but regularly three, four or five years. I mean, that that's just very common. And there's this massive backlog yeah. because they're, they are taking it seriously. And I agree with John as they should, the, the, there are two ways you could speed it up. I mean, you just, put more resources you just have more people processing these applications and trying to limit these backlogs. But again, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about how many that would take and, and what, what um, issues that that could present. The other way that you could, that you, I don't know if this would speed it up, but you could increase the number of available slots. But again, that doesn't help you on the time on the time front. I mean, okay, so you get more people into the system applying, and you have more of these visas to give out. But the interesting thing is, we've never, as a country, actually come close to meeting the limits that we've set. And so, let's say we set okay in terms for, of visas. For, 
exactly. So if we okay. say, okay, in 2017, 16, 17, or, and I'm just spitballing here, we're going to have 80,000 visas are going to be issued under the SIV program. We've never come anywhere close to those numbers. And so I don't think it is so much the number of visas. I think it's whatever it is, whether it's resources, whatever it is, it's the backlog that has honestly accumulated over the, the length of the SIV program. And so someone today goes and applies while they're behind everyone else that's stuck in this backlog going back however many years. And I, I don't know what the answer is around that. I don't know. I've heard something recently doing some reading on how to, the, so there's something called, um, Operation Allies Refuge, right? That's like the thing right now to pull as many out quickly as we yeah. can. Um, and I think I saw something where they were talking about moving some of them to a, a third party, right? Moving to a different country and kind of staging there before they come into the United States um, and what areas would be, a, you know, a temporary visa kind of thing. So it seems like there's kind of some solutions, but that makes me think, that it's just never been a high enough priority to really like solve that problem. If that makes sense. Like, you know, Connor, you said that normally it takes a couple of years. That's crazy at baseline, but I guess it was just never um, enough, right. To like really put resources into result. We had a lot of other issues in Afghanistan and Iraq and around the rest of the world and at home. So I don't know, maybe it's a little bit cold, but it kind of sounds like this, look, this just wasn't up there high enough to solve the problem. Yeah, in, in this particular situation, it, it it seems like they there might not have been enough forethought into uh, what can we do ahead of the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan to get some of these guys uh, at least at least in a position where they could be moved to a different country while they continue processing. Um, Cause a lot of them were just stranded. Um, and then once we pulled out, Taliban started, you know, shutting some roads down. It, it's become more difficult. Um, if I'm a, if I'm a former interpreter trying to get inside one of those groups that's getting relocated while they work on my case, I have to get to Kabul. They're not evacuating anyone from a different city. So if I'm not in Kabul, I have to somehow get there. And now a lot of the transportation, a lot of the methods that I used to have to get to Kabul are shut down or they're more treacherous or Taliban could have some checkpoints um, and I might not make it there. Uh, so now my, my chances of getting there just to get on, on the bus to a different location for further processing, now, now those chances are, are potentially gone or I'm putting myself in more danger just to get a possible chance at getting approval for this SIV. Yeah, I think yes. I, I think I and heard do 80, they, I was gonna say, I think I heard 85% of Afghanistan is now controlled by the Taliban. I think that was a Taliban number they put out. So take it with a grain of salt, but right. Yeah, and there's different ways to to calculate that i'm sure yeah. um so yeah it's hard to say like how how much they are in control but that would be a a pretty terrifying situation um 
if there's not a good way to get to can or to from Kandahar to Kabul, but you think that that's your only way for safety, it, you know, do you take that risk? It, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say. It, it, there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of uh, negative outcomes for you if you're in that situation where you're being hunted by the Taliban. You can't necessarily flee on foot to a different country. Um, if you try to get to Kabul, you might not make it. If you get there, you might not be safe. You might not get this approval. There's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, bad positions to be in for some of these guys. And and building on that too, I mean, even just getting the word out. I mean, I think that what I think that it's a great program that they're trying to implement. I believe it's largely. Um, and I don't know what stage of the process you have to be at, but I think it's largely moving people to Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Okay, so we have that. Um, uh, I think it's I think it's Turkey, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan are some of the biggest. But how do you? I mean, even getting word out to a lot of these guys that are in these rural villages. I mean, the chances that a lot of them even know that this program has been implemented is also probably unlikely well there is um i think you're right but this has kind of always been the case with, with a lot of these former interpreters is they they sort of band together and they they pass along information pretty well i'm not quite sure how they do it if it's you know mm -hmm. they have phones and stuff so i don't know if they're using like twitter or whatnot but they they'll find someone that's helping and i think what'll happen is they'll swarm that that resource um, and they'll reach out to them. You know, I, I think last I saw there were 19,000 of these uh, former interpreters trying to apply. So if you have 19,000 people suddenly emailing you and you're trying to help, that, that's that's too much. Uh, so, so there's only so much that, that some of these organizations can do. Right, right. That was so a good point. To add to that, um, you're talking about getting to other countries as best they could. And John, you have the good story of somebody actually getting out. But to add to that, 85% of Taliban holding the country, there were some reports of them starting to hold up border crossing sites. I mean, there's always across the mountains somewhere into Pakistan. But I think it was last week they said the Taliban are starting to take and actually control border crossings into Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Like they're locking the country down. Like the the opportunity to get out outside of maybe this um, Operation Allies Refuge, like that might be yeah. it. Yeah, it's kind of, the opportunity is probably gone um, unless you can get on this this group of folks that's going somewhere else for processing. So the, the White House said they have a plan. I should, I should have double checked this before I just rattle off a stat. I'm almost positive. I read that the White House put out a plan to get all remaining, all pending SIVs out by the end of August. So that's like five weeks. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I think that the plan was next was next week was when this when flights okay. actually started. Last week of July was what I had read. Yeah, and I know it's a tiered process that people that are. Um, at a certain stage in the process, get out first, uh, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. I don't know. That's a lot. 
that's a lot to do in a few weeks. And we were just talking about three, four, eight year periods to get this stuff done. I mean, there's no way they're getting through all of that in five weeks, right? There's going to be exceptions. They're going to have to figure workarounds. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea is good. They'll, they'll get some people out. Um, so it, it'll help some of these former interpreters, but there will people, there, there will be people that won't make it. And, yeah. and that's what's, that's what's disheartening. I feel like in a big picture, this has got to hurt the United States down the road, right? These are people that, I mean, interpreters did that work for a lot of different reasons. Just like anybody takes any kind of work for a lot of different reasons. Some were super patriotic. Some it was simply a paycheck. Um, others trying to get to the United States, but we asked a lot of them. And I don't know. I feel like, I feel like wherever we are next, because this will happen again, people will remember this, right? Yeah, yeah, you're talking like if if uh, we do some nation building in a different country that doesn't speak English, we'll need we're asking for help. Yeah. yeah, we're asking for help. Yeah. yeah, we might be less likely to get that help uh, from people that can just look at this situation and be like, I don't know if I trust that you're going to keep me safe. Uh, I know what happened to those Afghan interpreters. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that's that's a thing to worry about. Uh, the the uh, the alternative is, you know, we'll find help if we're going to a country that's in that rough of a situation. Um, I think you can argue that we'll still be able to find interpreters uh, wherever we are. There's the power of, of the dollar. There's, um, you know, people that if you need a job and we're providing the job, then, like you said, you'll take the risk. Um, so I think it, it hurts uh, that future potential, but I think we'll, we'll still be able to get it. Let's shift to something a little more positive here. So um, what can somebody do rather than just sit here and be sad that maybe we didn't, you know, complete a promise to these folks to work with us? What can be done? And, and, and John, if you don't mind talking about what your role has looked like and how people could get into that. And then Connor, the little more legal side and, and the IRAP piece, how anybody can get involved there. John, you mind going first there? Yeah. Um, so again, I've never been able to go all in on this effort, um, but there are really good people that have been. Um, so my role, and there's probably others out there in my shoes, is I'll, I'll just get randomly uh, contacted by some of these interpreters that still have my contact information because I put it on my letter of recommendation that I gave them when we were working together 10 years ago. Um, so they'll reach out to me and say, Hey, I need help. I'm scared. Can you help me? Um, and, and honestly, my role has kind of just been an advocate. Uh, so for example, um, there's, there's a group that that's leading the effort right now to, to get, uh, to help these special immigrant visa applicants. And they're lobbying um, at Congress, and, and I forget their name, uh, so I won't even try to say it. Um, but if you can if you try to contact them directly, they give you an automated response because again, I think they're getting flooded with requests. Um, but in that automated response, there's an email you can send, um, 
and, and if anyone's wondering, I could, I could get that to you. Um, anyways, instead of having Faradun email that uh, person who's helping people with this process and helping people get on those trips to a different country um, for, for processing, um, I, I started connecting with them because I felt like, you know, I, I might have a better shot at um, saying the right things or, um, you know, because I'm a former military person, then I might have more, I don't know, more clout with this group than someone that still doesn't speak English very well and doesn't have the best um, ability to, to check their email every day, trying to respond to any more requests for information. Um, so that's worked pretty good because this group, this this woman that I've been emailing, uh, has base she basically told me to. She's like, all right, where's Faridun? What's his case number? You know, tell me some information about him. I got all that stuff to her. She said, okay, he's in Kandahar. He needs to get to Kabul. Uh, so, so then I'm, I'm just the go-between. I'm like, all right, Faridun, you need to get to Kabul however is possible. So it, it's, it's a little strange because it almost, like, I'm so far removed. I'm sitting here, like, at a restaurant in Washington state trying to, to email my old friend that I haven't seen in 10 years and telling him to move across to his country to try to get to a safe spot based on an email from someone that I don't know that just told me this is where he needs to be. Uh, so, so there's, yeah. there's a lot of trust going on. He trusts me, mm -hmm. I'm trusting her, but, but I, I, I think it's going to at least be a, a better spot for him to be. And he might actually get, get out of the country. Um, so there's, I don't know, that, that that's my situation. That that's what I've lived in the in the past few weeks as this has progressed. Um, so I'm hopeful, um, but we'll see. You said that you think there's a benefit that you were prior military. Um, does that mean that you don't have to be like anybody could potentially step into that role? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. The the biggest thing is knowing is having the connection. You know, I'm just still connected to these guys. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a way that it, people can volunteer to be an advocate uh, for a former interpreter. I don't know if there's a way to to connect with them, but that could be potentially helpful. And we will put that email in the notes. The email you mentioned. We'll make sure that's in the notes. Um, Connor. A little more on the formal side, maybe? Is that the way to put it? Yeah, I, I mean, so, I mean, there's just the the obvious, uh, you know, if you, if it's an issue that you feel strongly about and you want to, you want to donate, organizations like IRAP, like any nonprofit that are aggressively, uh, aggressively striving towards any particular goal are very leanly funded. And, you know, certainly appreciate and, and utilize uh, donations from, from anyone. But the other big, I think, action that anyone can take is just contacting their elected representative. And this goes back to what you had, when you had raised a few minutes ago about, you know, could there, could there have been more urgency? Could more resources have been provided? Is there a way that this could have, uh, that this could have taken a higher priority amidst everything else that our country has going on, both in Afghanistan and at home? And 
I mean, that's one way that you do that. If if calls and emails are coming in to elected representatives, especially at a time like now when this issue is is very relevant and is in is very prevalent in many of the the major news networks. I mean, this is this is a time where where those sorts of communications can be effective, especially if enough of them are coming in. Um, you just you can't overvalue what a what a, a a congressperson or a senator can do if they if they want to if they get involved. What about for law students or I don't know all the terms, but law students or lawyers are they looking for people? I'm not speaking on behalf of the organization yeah. there, but no, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, they the the model has changed since I was a law student, and they no longer are having law students run cases. So it's it's more now just attorneys with firms. But um, I mean, absolutely, the you know attorneys can reach out to IRAP and can have their firm and and have themselves added as representatives that want to get involved on these issues. And they can either take on cases directly. I mean, it's it's not like they would just be uh, flying by the seat of their pants. I mean, IRAP provides uh, training videos and training materials and has resources that they can reach out to to kind of make sure they're on the right track. But they can take on cases directly through their firm or they can get involved on policy side, whether it's uh, whether it's lob lobbying the administration or targeted members of Congress or whether it's getting involved in, in kind of um, more high profile cases that aren't a aren't a, an individual being represented. But let's say, uh, you know, let, let's say you, the word comes down that Congress is looking at at uh, passing a bill that increases the length of service from now what has been already increased to two years to two and a half years or three years, while organizations like IRAP can try and, and A, lobby against that and B, fight it in the courts on uh, you know, constitutional grounds or whatever else they feel they may have um, authority to do so. But that's another way that attorneys can get involved. So there's kind of three main areas, direct representation, policy, and then um, kind of more high impact litigation. Makes sense. And then, Any I mean, there are other organizations than IRAP, of course. That's just, I keep referencing IRAP because that's the one I've, I've worked with for, for these past years. So I've got something kind of unrelated, kind of related, I'm going to end on, but before we do that, is there anything you guys want to hit on that we missed or, or been on your mind or that we, you know, you want people to be aware of? Yeah. Sorry, John. I, uh, you mentioned being, you know, wanting to take a positive note. I, I guess I wanted to just tell a quick success story that, that I think was pretty cool. Um, so I, I, uh, I helped a guy named Nasir. He, he was my my uh, interpreter in 2010 uh, he he bunked right next to me for most of the time that I was living on a on a uh, small platoon outpost um, he, he was a, a great interpreter and we stayed connected and and I actually got him connected to IRAP uh, back in 2014 2013 time 
and uh, he he was able to go through the system fairly quickly. And somewhere around 2017 or so, he was successful. He got relocated to the Dallas, Texas area. Uh, so I was very relieved at the time. I was living in Minnesota, though, uh, starting a family. So I just kind of didn't think about it much anymore. I was like, all right, we, we got him here. This is great. Maybe I'll see him someday. I'll invite him to a reunion, whatever. Um, a couple of years go by. I'm on a, I'm on a, on a flight to go to a, a friend's wedding in California. I am at a layover in Dallas, Texas. I walk up to my gate and I'm kind of, they're starting to board. And as I'm approaching, I, I hear someone start yelling, oh my God, I know this man. Oh my God, I know this man. And, and I think, you know, I, I of course look around like who's yelling that this is kind of strange. And I realize that it's Nasir. He's at the airport. He's working at the airport and he's looking right at me. And I recognize him right away. We hadn't seen each other in, I don't know, eight years or so. And, uh, and, and he kind of like runs up to me and, and we, we just give each other a big hug. You know, we were, we were just so emotional. Uh, we hadn't seen each other in so long, but, but I had helped him, you know, indirectly get here and he was so thankful. And so he, he told me, and, and he could be exaggerating, but he, he told me that uh, he took that job at the airport knowing that someday our paths would cross and, and that he would see me randomly in the airport, <laughs> but it, like but it, it happened. Uh, so it was, it was really cool. Um, so yeah, we, we caught up for a couple of minutes, but then I had to get on my flight. Uh, so, so we said goodbye. I haven't seen him since, but I thought that was just really cool. And it was, you know, it, it's not the same bond as with another member of the military, uh, but there is a bond formed uh, between uh, U.S. troops and our interpreters. You know, th th that's a real thing. You know, it, it, shared hardship creates, you know, strong bonds between people. So uh, it was, it was, it was great to see him. Dude, that's awesome. That is. Connor, are you going to try to top that? <laughs> I can't top it. John beat me to it, but I, I was, I wanted to do the exact same thing and uh, end on a positive note with a story, a success story. Um, mine not nearly the level of, uh, of, of emotion that just happened there but um it's uh it's 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 funny so the very young guy he'd been he had been working not as an interpreter but as an it specialist with his father his father got him in when he was very young and he started working when he was like 16. so now fast forward he's uh maybe 21 when he was trying to flee the country, um, we successfully brought him to, to the, to the U S really fast. It was unbelievable. I think the whole process was like 18 months or 16 months. I couldn't, we couldn't believe it, but it worked out. He comes here and he, he, uh, resettles in Philadelphia. So maybe two years go by. Not maybe it was the next year. It was it wasn't very long. And he calls me on New Year's Eve, and I said, "Hey, you know what? How's it going? Where are you? What's happening?" He said, "Well, I'm driving to New York City." I said, "What? What are you? What's the plan?" He said, "I'm going to Times Square. I'm going to see the fireworks." And I said, "That sounds great, man. Like good for you." He said, "Yeah, it's always been a dream of mine." And I said, "Well, how's everything else going? How's life?" I can hear he's on the road, and we're talking. He said, "Well." I bought a Dodge Charger. 
And he's like, that's what I'm driving right now. He said, I'm flying down the highway in my Dodge Charger. And this is obviously in a bit of broken English, which made it all the better. And he said, and, and my work is really not that great, but it, I make enough money to pay for this car and the gas that it runs on. And I was like, kind of quiet. I was like waiting for the next bit. And, and I said, well, that's great. And he goes, I've never been happier. And after the call, it kind of really hit me that this, this young kid is on his way to the fireworks Times Square in a Dodge Charger and is bragging that he makes enough money to pay for the gas to run this absurd vehicle. And he was so, I mean, the, just the joy and excitement in his voice was it was really incredible. And it just kind of reminds you of what, what we have in this country and kind of what the dream is, whatever that dream may be for this guy, it was, you know, a Dodge Charger in the open highway. But um, it really, I don't know, it really resonated with me because it seemed like something that was, that it's not like you won the lottery. It's, you got a Dodge Charger and he was a young guy and no one was trying to kill him and he was happy. And it was, it was a great phone call. That's awesome. Well, I should have started with this, but it's been um, 15, 16 years since Beast, right? Summer of 05? Yeah. Yeah. So Beast Barracks is the first summer at West Point. It started in June, like June 27th, something like that, 2005. John, Connor, and I were all in the same platoon. I think, John, we were in the same squad, I think, right? We were. Yeah, Connor was not. I was um, Williams. But so we were then in the same company for four years at West Point and roomed together one semester, just one time. But uh, all of that to say, I go out of my way to not send compliments their way. Um, <laughs> but you guys should be really proud of what you've done with these programs. I mean, whether you've you know shepherded one to completion or if you just played a 1% role, dude, that's, that's changing generations. Like those are people who may not have kids and now they're going to have kids that are going to grow up in the United States and flourish and, and have, and have their kids and their kids and their kids. Like the impact you guys have had is generational and that's really cool. So thank you. Thank you both for doing that. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. It's, fun to be a part of it's uh like you said it, playing a small role in some of the lives of these folks that helps americans it's it's uh it's worth pursuing i agree i like it well thanks for taking the time to talk through this gents and we'll uh we will do this again before too long absolutely yep hey thanks for listening to war stories if you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.